Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with the latest uh, roundup of blogs uh, uh, on the From Poverty to Power um, site. I'm halfway through dry January, so this is um, uh, something we do every year. Uh, don't drink any alcohol from the from New Year's Day until we it's, we do a slightly shorter version because my wife's birthday is on the twenty fourth, and the Scots Festival of Burns Night is on the twenty fifth. So only got to last another ten days or so. It's actually quite fun, and I feel much better. So every year I think, oh, I should just carry on doing that, and then every year I kind of don't. Um, also an extraordinary week in terms of political meltdown in Britain. Um, the sort of extraordinary implosion of the government around the issue of partying during lockdown, which somehow seems very appropriate for this particular government, that that should be the thing that uh, could bring them down. Uh, we'll wait and see on that one. Um, Work-wise, <clears throat> everyone's back and everyone's kind of re-energised by their breaks and keen to chat. So this week was all about, you know, interviews, phone calls, catching up with people, three different podcasts. A lot of this stuff ends up on the blog, so you will end up hearing about it at uh, yeah, one point or another. All quite exhausting, but a lot of fun. Anyway, let's uh, let's get on and talk through the blogs. So the, um, the links I liked this week, uh, the one I'd point to was what's going on in Kazakhstan, where the initial trigger for the unrest in Kazakhstan was cuts in um, fuel subsidies. And I think this is, yeah, there's some really interesting work on this by Naim Hussain and others saying, listen guys, um, you know, in the West, people saying fuel subsidies make no sense. They benefit the middle classes and the rich. Let's just cut them because, because of climate change. And what you saw in Kazakhstan is what can happen when, that, when they do that. Uh, in this case, it triggered an enormous protest because people feel they don't get much from their governments and one of the few things they do get is cheap fuel. So there's a whole stream of work by Naomi and others looking at the politics of fuel riots. Um, and what's happened in Kazakhstan as often happens is that those riots then morph into something else. In this case, they seem to have morphed into an internal struggle within the Kazakhstan government. The former strongman being ousted, a new strongman coming in and pledging allegiance to Russia in order to get the backing he needed to win that internal battle. But uh, in general, I think we need to think more politically about the whole politics of fossil fuel subsidies um, before we can really understand what's going on. Lots of other links on, on links I liked. The second post was, what does governance look like from below? And, and this was a, a summary of a stream of work Again at IDS, I'm obviously having an IDS week, um, which I really liked. This uh, it's it's <clears throat> some work they call governance at the margins, and this paper summed up several years of work. I think it's yeah the methodology is fascinating, the format's great, really good findings, really well written. So I, I got very excited about this paper. So let me read you a bit of it. The Action for Empowerment and Accountability Research Program, covered regularly on this blog is drawing to a close in a welter of research papers summarising their findings. I was particularly taken with the one from the Governance of the Margins team. On format, it's grazable, <clears throat> if that's a word. You can hop to each of its five main findings and from there jump straight to what interests you, research, examples or practice. On content, it's the latest iteration of the Governance Diaries approach, for which I'm determined to claim a bit of credit as I first suggested the idea to Anu Joshi, Anu Joshi from IDS over a beer in a Yangon restaurant in 2016. But since then, it's been IDS, 
Oxfam and others that have really taken the idea and turned it into something that I think now is a really significant addition to development research methods. And there's links on the blog if you want to know more about governance diaries. But basically, it's going back to the same people uh, over a period of time and building up a longitudinal picture and building trust so they tell you what's really going on, in this case on governance, but it could be applied to health. We've done it with water in uh, at LSE. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, way of using local researchers, local students to do some very interesting research. Um, some background uh, on the paper. What does governance look like from below from the perspectives of poor and marginalised households? How do patterns of conflict affect that? These were the questions at the heart of the Governance at the Margins research project. Over three years, from 2017 to 2020, we worked to explore this through in-depth study in conflict-affected areas of Mozambique, Myanmar and Pakistan. Our research team interviewed the same people regularly over that time, finding out how they resolved problems and interacted with authorities. Here we connect with what we found to the realities and complexities of development practice. We draw on the input of 20 experienced practitioners working in bilateral and multilateral development agencies and international NGOs. So I'll just give you the titles and first paragraphs of the five main findings. Uh, first finding, multiple and diverse authorities matter for people's decision-making and governance needs. These extend beyond the official government and are both formal and informal. Many programmes and policies overassume the importance of the government as the primary authority in people's lives and don't engage with the diversity of actors and institutions that are taking real decisions that affect people, or indeed the messy ways in which these can overlap. Whilst these other authorities are sometimes acknowledged and engaged with in grassroots development practice, they are too often disregarded or rendered invisible in programme and policy frameworks. Second finding, intermediaries are crucial to how governance happens. They work as the navigators of diverse sources of authority, work across formal and informal local governance systems, and in some cases exercise significant authority them themselves as deciders. Many development programmes and policies assume that people can approach and connect with public services and officials themselves. We found it is more common that these contacts are mediated by key individuals. This challenges assumptions about how governance and services work in practice. The informal or unofficial nature of these roles, coupled with the fact that those playing them are sometimes unusual governance actors, means that despite practitioners often knowing how important they are, they are frequently missed out when programmes map what structures are in place and who is important. Quick slurp of coffee, hold on. Third um, finding. Communities are governed through diverse local networks. Standard local governance structures rarely apply and there can be a lot of variation even within one region. Development programmes and policies too often assume that there is one system of governance or decision making across wide territories. There is also often an assumption that a linear hierarchy through national, regional and local governance institutions means that policy is adapted and implemented in the same way across those territories. That isn't how real local governance works in our research locations. Many practitioners are very aware of this, but end up working with frameworks that aren't flexible or nuanced enough to respond to it. Fourth finding, self-provision and low expectations are common. People, including intermediaries, are very often incentivized to resolve things locally rather than involving higher level public authorities or duty bearers. 
assuming a preference for state-run or centrally managed services and decision-making, may not be in keeping with community views and practices, and may be premised on a demand for service provision that doesn't exist at a local level. This has a range of implications for public policy and development programmes. Fifth finding, women typically need to engage with local patriarchal power structures. Despite this, women intermediaries are frequently viewed as successful. The fact that women very often need to engage with or rely on men who hold greater power within both formal and informal governance structures is not particularly surprising. However, it is important to recognise explicitly if public policy or development programmes expect women to be able to access services or entitlements unaided or on an equal basis to men. So, I mean, some of the overarching things about that, I, I thought, um, before I get on to their, their, their set of six dilemmas, is, is, you know, A, people working in the aid sector often know these things are true, but they somehow put them to one side when they get into the reality, yeah, into the, the nuts and bolts of filling in the forms and doing the log frames and, and the, 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 the paraphernalia of the aid business. And so those things get squeezed out of how we actually respond. So I think, yeah, Ros Ibin and others at IDS have charted this over many years. There's a kind of double life of aid workers where they know how things are on the ground or at least have a pretty good idea, but that's not how they describe it or respond to it in their programs. I think increasingly people are thinking that is a problem because then the programs are less effective and you're missing out huge chunks of how people actually lead their lives. And as I said, they conclude with six dilemmas. And these echoed quite you know, loudly for me anyway. Do we work with the grain or challenge it? And at what costs for rights-based principles? So do you go along with a system that's male only or do you challenge it? What does this complexity of governance actors and systems mean for where we focus our efforts? How do we weigh up the risks around engaging in politics? What does this mean for trying to work at scale? Do we support plurality or strengthen convergence, for example, of non-state and state authorities? Who benefits from the status quo? Does supporting informal solutions keep the bad guys in power? All of these things that I think good, you know, good aid workers agonise on, really drawn out in that IDS paper. And um, it's not just IDS, I think there's some contributors from Oxfam and others. Really good. Have a look at what does governance look like from below if you're interested in these sort of topics. The next post was a product of one of these chats um, uh, that I mentioned at the beginning, how to monitor political context, some practical advice. So I was doing a podcast actually for an LSE project with Johan Eldebo at World Vision about its work on adaptive management and systems thinking. For those who don't know, World Vision is the £1,000 gorilla of INGOs. It's four times bigger than, than Oxfam in terms of income. Um, and it, it, it does some really interesting thinking around fragile states, complexity, adaptive management, uh, especially in humanitarian response, where things are often chaotic and fast moving. So Johan, after we had this chat, sent me its internal guidance on context monitoring for adaptive management, which doesn't exactly set the pulse racing. But I had a look at it. I thought, oh, this is pretty good. So I put it up for the wonks. And sure enough, the, the, the post got a lot of hits. I think there's a lot of very wonky people read my blog. So you can, I'm pretty sure when I do something internal and uh, a little bit technical about the aid business, it's going to be popular. And this one was no exception. So let me talk it through for those of you who, um, who want to stay with this particular bit. What is context monitoring? At its core, 
Context monitoring is about understanding your surroundings well enough to be able to actively make good and timely decisions on how to act as a team. When we monitor the context, a helpful distinction can be to think about it as one, indicators of the past and present, and two, signals of the future. This was the bit that I liked. I thought that was really good. Both can be pre-selected, linked to particular scenarios, but it's also good to allow scope for monitoring other things that come up unexpectedly. Keep the, you know, that, the, the, the ability to see things in, in your peripheral vision that, you, that aren't in your plan or in your program document. Indicators indicate something is currently happening. Signals suggest that something is about to happen. And the example they give is a, a car. Your car speedometer may tell you that you are driving at 50 kilometers an hour. That's an indicator of your current speed. Next to your speedometer is a warning light telling you that you're almost out of fuel. That is a signal that something shortly is about to happen. And then they give lots of examples from World Vision's work, which I thought were really useful to make that you know, real. And then they set out uh, some, uh, really, Johan wrote this document, I think, so let's call it Johan. Johan um, set out some principles for effective context monitoring. And this you know, echoed a lot of the stuff I've been reading about and writing about on adaptive management. A culture of flexibility and subsidiarity of decision-making. Subsidiarity, difficult word to say, means making decisions at the lowest practical and appropriate level, and that is key to effectiveness. Two, demonstrate willingness, demonstrable willingness to support change by leadership. So leaders have to show you know, that context monitoring works best when staff are convinced that, the, that they are willing to reassess the current approach if circumstances change or are likely to change and that leaders are going to support those changes, not say, no, 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 the plan says this, you've got to go back to doing that. So that's things like having flexible funding so that if something changes, you're willing to spend money on something different. If the evidence is there, it's not just about randomly changing your mind every five minutes, but it's about having a process for being flexible and putting money behind the insights that arise during the course of your work. Tolerance of ambiguity. We monitor the context because we are not sure what may happen next. The future as well as the present is ambiguous and our monitoring should reflect that lack of certainty and we should not overstate our confidence. Yes, yes, yes. I would say actually that the past is pretty ambiguous as well, as you'll know if you talk to historians, but that's another point. Next point, relationship building and trust with communities and with donors. Many of the important insights that will guide good context monitoring will come from key individuals who are well-connected and well-informed. It will be important to build and maintain those connections and ensure that the insight from key people are given the weight they deserve in the monitoring. And that links to localization because the people with the key insights and relationships at a national level and local level will be national staff. And the people with the key insights and relationships with donors and you know, with, say, you know, multilateral organizations are likely to be expats. Both of those have got to be equally valued if you're going to have a proper bit of context monitoring. And that links to the next point, which is listening to the voice of communities and staff. Sometimes the best source of information will be seemingly unlikely individuals, such as shop owners or taxi drivers, or generally well-connected persons with the communities we are working with, including frontline staff members. For example, drivers, so these are the people who drive the INGO vehicles in many countries, will often have a very good understanding of checkpoints, traffic patterns and road conditions. I would add they also have time to chat to people and Oxfam in the past, in I think Ethiopia, got their drivers to just 
monitor local food prices and got a whole load of data that would have been very difficult to collect otherwise. So there's a lot you can do with um, staff at all levels, if you think about it. And then the paper goes on to set out some practical steps in setting up a context monitoring plan, including how to choose those indicators and signals, who should collect them, how they should collect them. So I like this, this because it, 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 got, it sort of went beyond the kind of hand wavy, you need to understand the context, dance with the system stuff that I dish out and others too, um, and really try to turn it into something concrete and practical. Uh, and, and, and also, I like the emphasis on good enough, you know, You've, they try and do this in two weeks. It's not about getting someone to do their PhD on whatever and coming up with loads of advice, which is far too late. How do you ingrain this in the fast paced move, especially in responding to emergencies? So I thought that was a great piece of work. It's very nice of um, Johan to let me share an internal document online. Uh, the full document's available on the blog. Last post of the week. Who is helping protest movements? This is another conversation. Who is helping? So when people come to talk to me, be warned, I'm likely to turn it into a blog, even if you know, I, I don't name names because usually people are just chatting and don't particularly want to be you know, put out there in public. So this one was, who is helping protest movements engage with policymakers? And anyway, is that a good idea? So a researcher got in touch this week to interview me for a scoping study for a funder that wants to explore whether, whether and how philanthropic actors can support movements as they move from political disruption to shaping political processes and, out, processes and outcomes, to identify gaps and ultimately to design a programme that complements existing projects. Well, first of all, great that a donor, a philanthropist in this case, a big foundation, is actually trying to find out what's going on and find out if gaps exist before it starts funding some new thing and starts duplicating some perfectly good work. Um, and what I did in this situation, which I increasingly do, is stick a question out on Twitter to see if somebody out there, you know, I've got quite a few followers, if somebody out there has some good ideas, some good links, and usually I get some good ones, and, and this was no exception. So I wove those into the post. Um, so first, I, I would, of course, challenge the premise. The premise is that social movements, in some sense, should move from political disruption to shaping political processes. Well, I kind of agree with that. You know, I got um, frustrated when Extinction Rebellion just kind of, kind of kept getting arrested and, and didn't seem to engage much at a policy level. And then eventually the issue cycle moves on and, and you know, um, things go quiet and then it looks like a failure. I'll come back to whether that is a failure or not later. But it seems like a missed opportunity. You know, can't, is it not possible when you get a big spike of activity to cash in your chips and turn that into policy impact? And policy impact is always slower moving. You know, you need stamina you're going into political processes and lengthy discussions with people who don't agree with you, it takes a lot longer than, than a protest. But then the counter argument's also strong, that in the ecosystem of politics, it's fine for outsider protest movements to stay that way. Others, other people, other institutions, other organisations can play the insider role. And it's actually very hard to combine the two. I've seen this over the years. I've noticed a kind of asymmetry where insiders People are doing the lobbying, you know, in the suits, talking to ministers, are really happy when protest movements open up political space. Um, uh, oh, I've just realised, uh, never mind. Um, but the outsiders get very annoyed. Um, the outsiders can get very annoyed when insiders muddy the waters, 
settle for less than they want. You know, they think they've been co-opted by the people in power. So often the insiders are a lot happier than the outsiders about that dance between the two. But also most people tend to temperamentally be one or the other. Not many people are just as happy out on the streets shouting on a barricade and whipping into a telephone box, changing into a suit and going in and lobbying a minister. There are, they do exist and they're very impressive, but a lot of people actually just, you know, psychologically, temperamentally prefer one or the other and they, and they get very you know, anxious if, if asked to do both. Second, the how. How do organisations support social movements? There are an expanding number of offers of training and toolkits, there are so many toolkits, um, and uh, encouragingly, and, and more and more of those come from the Global South or from North-South uh, organisations that are more horizontal and don't do that, you know, hello, I've come to build your capacity thing, which was rather uh, unpleasant in the past in terms of Northern Aid Agencies. Um, I think something else is worth exploring though, mentoring. I think it's difficult, it's expensive, it's very labour intensive, but I think often people don't want a toolkit. They want someone to chat to and say, oh, I've been having a real problem with this or with that. And they want someone to chat to who's been there, who's been in that situation, who might have some insights, who might have some relevant experience. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I think this is a great way to use people who haven't got the energy perhaps or the stomach to be out on the barricades now, but did so in the past to support those who are, who are carrying on, yeah, who picked up the baton uh, in the current wave. Third, the what. So there's lots of advice out there in these toolkits and all the rest of it on how to design strategy and choose tactics. There's a lot about increasing amount about building narratives, which I think is really important. You know, it's not just about tactics. It's about how do you create a narrative that makes sense to a public or to political decision makers and on the nuts and bolts of movement organizing, defending civil society space against attack. And then in formal politics, lots about how to monitor elections, how to prepare candidates if you want to put up candidates in elections and so on. There's also a lot of initiatives aimed at preparing next generation leaders, although I'm not sure how effective they are. Sometimes they just seem like a big you know, um, cocktail circuit for future bosses. And I'm not sure how much they actually learn from it, apart from getting a good, good number of uh, addresses in their, um, you know, you know, on their phone. But I think there are two gaps that are, that are worth exploring. At least I think they're gaps. They may just be that I don't know about people working on them. The first one is downtime versus spikes. As I said earlier, you know, a lot of the attention in training goes on how to trigger these big surges. So how do you organize a demo? How do you get a momentum? How do you do social media? You know, how do you make a big bang? And those big bangs are fantastic. They can move policy. They can move decision makers. But they never last for very long. The history of social movements over centuries is that social movement activity is spiky. You have big spikes and then you have quiet times. In the quiet times, more lower profile, more durable organisations, you know, trades unions, faith groups, women's organisations, local neighbourhood associations, beaver away and do their thing. And then, you know, a few years down the road, they all coalesce around something, maybe the same thing, maybe a different thing, and you get another spike. So a lot of activists, you know, experience the decline in the numbers on demos as a, as a terrible thing, you know. Um, but actually, that's just how things work. And, and why not look at the downtime between surges and how activists get stuck into building the networks for the longer term rather than, you know, uh, I think that's one thing which probably there isn't, a, there's less attention on. Then the second one, another thing I've talked about a lot on the blog, domestic fundraising. There are numerous conversations in the aid sector about localization, 
pushing power and decision-making closer to the ground, away from donors or NGO HQs in the rich countries. But all the talk has actually generated very little action. I was looking at the numbers recently for a chapter I'm writing with my boss, Danny Srishkandaraja, for a book. And according to the OECD, developing country-based civil society organisations receive directly just 6% of total aid spending. They get some more as subcontractors, but that comes with a whole lot of other baggage about who's actually calling the tune on those things. So, you know, I've, you know, I've heard people pushing and demanding localization, getting angry about the lack of progress. And in my heart of hearts, I think, yeah, these are great. Yes, we've got to keep saying that. But you're basically arguing for a, for a separation of money and power. And I'm not sure that's possible. You're trying to keep the piper playing, but stop him calling the tune. And even if you manage that temporarily, the piper says, yes, I'm just going to play my pipes and you decide uh, what the next tune will be. In the end, you're going to face obstacles. You know, you, you may convince them for a while, but the next scandal, the next change of leadership, they're going to revert to type because they can. You know, they, if you have the money, you have the power um, and you will end up going back to how things were before. So why not fill that gap by helping protest movements raise funds locally rather than from international aid? You can raise money you know, from religious, through religious giving, from the diaspora. Again, it's not local, but from locally rooted, you know, embedded people. Um, that will give them an alternative to dancing to the aid agency's tune and the aid agency's procedures. Often the procedures are worse than the tune, uh, you know, tying people into all these compliance processes which bog them down. And, you know, what, the way I usually um, summarise this is, why is there no fundraisers without borders? You know, there's a... Doctors Without Borders, famously. There's Engineers Without Borders, Lawyers, Clowns. There's even a Borders Without Borders for skateboarders, apparently. There is no Fundraisers Without Borders. There's no system through which we send some of our best fundraisers out to just mentor local CSOs, local organisations, to raise more money uh, locally. And I remember a conversation with some friends at CAFOD, the Catholic Aid Agency. They got a request from, from Caritas Nigeria, I think it was, could you yeah, help us with our local fundraising? They sent a couple of people over there and Caritas Nigeria could not cope with the amount of money they suddenly you know, tapped into locally. If you do that, of course that money doesn't come with no strings attached, but it's different strings uh, and it's more like local politics. And I think it's a, it's a good alternative or a balancing to aid dependence. So on that note, I shall leave you. Uh, I'm going off to make marmalade now. This is the time of year when the several oranges arrive from Spain. And uh, you probably didn't know this, but I'm a big preserves buff. Uh, and I love making jams and uh, marmalade. So I'm going down to stink out the house with the smell of boiling oranges. And it's a great smell. Have a good weekend. Bye.